our news in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. We are hearing from the civil rights generation. Today, Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr. tells us about losing his cousin and best friend, Emmett Till, and how he couldn't speak about it with Till's mother. We never discussed it at all. She just recognized that I was the one with her son. I came back and her son didn't. And a family signed up for government aid to help care for an aging relative, but they faced a $200,000 bill. Plus, we talked to author Claire Jimenez about her new novel, What Happened to Ruthie Ramirez. It's Sunday, March 5th, and news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Conservationists are hailing what they call a historic victory after nearly 200 countries signed on to a treaty at the U.N. last night to protect nearly a third of the planet's high seas. The deal has yet to be formally adopted, but NPR's Twali Saikautau reports it will be legally binding. This treaty has been years in the making. And over the last few days, negotiators from more than 100 nations were in marathon talks over economic interest and technology sharing of marine genetic resources with stakeholders, especially those from developing countries. Greenpeace says the agreement is a monumental win for ocean protection. By 2030, the hope is to protect at least 30 percent of the world's high seas, meaning international waters. The idea is to create water sanctuaries, protect marine species, regulate where fishing can take place, and outline new rules for deep-sea mining. Dwali Saikautau, NPR News, New York. A shelter-in-place order no longer in effect in Clark County, Ohio, where about 20 cars of a Norfolk Southern train derailed late yesterday near Springfield. Township Fire Chief Dave Mangle spoke to reporters late last night. There's no indication of any injuries risk of the public health at this time. This latest derailment is Norfolk Southern's fourth in Ohio in less than five months. That includes a major derailment in East Palestine, where the emergency response is ongoing. That train was carrying hazardous materials, and there are lingering concerns about the impact on long-term health. Clark County officials have said they are working to make sure that no hazardous materials were involved in the Springfield derailment. The station master on duty at the time of Tuesday's deadly train crash in Greece is set to appear in court today. He is to give a deposition as funerals take place this weekend for some of the 57 people killed. The disaster has sparked an outpouring of anger and protests around the country. A new survey has found that a majority of workers laid off in December or January have already found new jobs. NPR's Andrea Shu reports a trend could change if the economy continues to slow in 2023. Researchers at the job site ZipRecruiter polled some 2,000 workers in the U.S. who had recently been laid off from their jobs. They found 55% of people laid off in December or January had already found new jobs by the end of January. Some had multiple offers, and nearly four out of five of them had secured jobs that pay the same or better than their old jobs. Those most likely to be reimbursed employed work in advertising and marketing, the auto industry, and tech. ZipRecruiter notes that historically laid-off workers fare better when the unemployment rate is low. Right now, it's at a 50-year low of 3.4%. But if layoffs accelerate this year, displaced workers could face greater challenges. Andrea Shu, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. 
U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins is in Alabama today for the commemoration of Bloody Sunday. She's leading a group of attorneys general who will meet with community and civil rights leaders and walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. That's where civil rights marchers were attacked by police with clubs and tear gas in 1965. We hope that there's going to be a better understanding from the leaders that are going about the importance of this work, not just prosecuting hate crimes, but also the civil rights laws that we have to uphold. President Biden will also be in Selma today to mark the event. Five black Massachusetts Convention Center Authority employees have filed a racial discrimination suits against the authority. The Boston Globe reports the formal complaints were filed with the state attorney general's office. The Globe reports a white employee was fired after he filed a complaint, alleging he was warned for complaining for what he saw as heightened security at black-sponsored events. The executive director of the Convention Center Authority suggests to the Globe that the complaints are politically motivated. An annual pre-St. Patrick's celebration by UMass Amherst students landed 28 of them in the hospital. The UMass administration and the town of Amherst report the students yesterday were treated for alcohol intoxication. The rush of patients put a strain on emergency and hospital staffs. The Blarney Blowout, as it's called, has for years been criticized for excessive drinking and for disturbances. In sports, the Celtics host the New York Knicks tonight at the TD Garden. In the forecast, a partly cloudy Sunday with temperatures climbing into the low 40s. Clear skies overnight, the temps drop to the low 30s, partly sunny into the mid-40s tomorrow. And looking ahead to Tuesday, partly mostly, partly to mostly cloudy skies, mid-30s. Right now in Boston, it is 36 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for being with us. Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr. is still trying to process something from his past, from 67 years ago. You feel so helpless. You're 16 and you don't know about the media and I've had to live with that story all my life. Even now it's still painful the way they portrayed him. What he's had to live with since 1955 is a double blow. The lynching of his 14-year-old cousin Emmett Till after an interaction with a white store clerk in Mississippi. And then the way Till was characterized in the courtroom and by some in the press. They portrayed him as a person, like they do a lot of black men in the South, rapists or too aggressive and, you know, out of line. All these years later, Reverend Parker is doing the telling, telling Emmett Till's story in a new book. It's his story, too, and we're featuring it as part of our series profiling members of the civil rights generation. And before Emmett Till became a symbol for the civil rights movement, he was just a child. A child who was silly and brave and adored by his family. You called him Bobo. That's what he was called by his family. We finally getting used to saying Emmett Till, but he was Bobo. 
Reverend Parker's book is called A Few Days Full of Trouble, and it bears witness to Emmett Till's death, but also his life. He was a fun-loving prankster, loved to tell jokes, stuttered all of the time. We do not really emphasize his stutter enough. Reverend Parker said that stutter never slowed Emmett Till down. He was the center of attention, and the two grew up tight, not just cousins but best friends, living next door to one another in Chicago. Emmett didn't have any siblings, so when his mother took him on trips or fishing or something, she took me along. We were bonded like that. So when he found out my grandfather was here and I'm going back south with him, he just couldn't believe it. He persisted as he would, and they finally decided to let him go. And that's how we went, ended up going together. What did you think when you were going down south for the summer? Like, was it something that you worried about, or was it something you were looking forward to? Uh, I was not apprehensive at that point because we were with my grandfather. We were in, we feel safe, you know. I knew what the south was like, and I was very much uh, aware of the mores, the rules of the south, because I spent my formative years there. So I knew the I knew the do's and don'ts without a doubt. They 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 taught black boys that to stay alive, because they know you could be killed. Black men had black men had a, a rough time, but we didn't have a hard time because we stayed within our lane. I mean, and what were some of the rules that you were told? Like this is what you cannot do. This is what you must do. Well, the biggest thing when you went into the store, you have to make sure you know, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. You got to say that. They're going to question you. I don't care how old you are. You couldn't give just an answer. Yes, sir, no, sir, no, no, ma'am, yes, ma'am, those kind of things. Those were some of the things that you really, really had to be up on because they could tell right away you're not from there by your language. Well, what happened at the store? I know you've told the story, but just so we know, what happened at the store? Those stores down south, they had a counter in front of you about four feet wide. And everything you want is on the wall behind the cashier. So you told them what you want, they bring it to you. And I remember very vividly, Emmett came, Bobo came into the store, and my heart just took a beat. I said, wow, I hope he got it together today because we're in the store and the attendants are white. So my Uncle Simeon, who was 12, came in the store with him. And nothing happened while they were in the store. But what happened after that, they came out of the store. Miss Bryant came out. And Emmett Till loved to make people laugh. He loved to have pranks. So he whistled. He gave it a wolf whistle. And this is the white woman who yes, was yes. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She was 21. She's a little young, young white lady there. And he whistled at her. And man, when he did that, we could have died. I mean... Nobody said, let's go. We just made a beeline for the car. But did he have any idea, like, what doing that would mean? Or he's just joking around. Like, he's, I mean, he's a kid. He just had no idea, right? Just, just turned 14. He was joking. He wanted to make us joking. laugh. Yeah. And when he saw that, we didn't laugh and we were scared. He's frightened now. And we jumped in the car and we're going down this gravel road. And there's a car coming behind us. Dust is flying everywhere. And someone said, they're after us. They're after us. And. Of course, we jumped out of the car, ran to the cotton field, and the car went on by. So when we regrouped at the edge of the road, Emmett begged us not to tell my grandfather. We uh, we didn't tell, should have told. Hindsight, we said we should have told, but you, you never know what you could have done to save, got him out of there or what. But anyway, that's, that's what we dealt with. 
And so then it was that Sunday morning when they came into the house. Yes, 2.30. I heard them talking at 2.30 in the morning. They said, you got two boys here from Chicago. And uh, of course, when I hear this, I'm thinking, I said, man, we're getting ready to die. I said, these people finna kill us. And they're here. And they're talking and they're asking and questions. And you were the other boy from Chicago. When they said two, right, right. it was, was you, were the, you were the other guy. Uh-huh. And I said, I'm getting ready to die. And first thing, we were raised very in a very strict religious atmosphere. And one thing I was very much aware of, that my relationship with God ain't right. That's what stuck me more. I said, God, if you just, if you just please let me live, I'm going to get my life right with you. And... uh and I'm shaking like a leaf on a tree in the dark of the thousand midnight. You can't, it's so dark, you can't see your hand before your face. So when they came in with the gun in one hand, the flashlight in the other, I closed my eyes to be shot. Horrible feeling, horrible, horrible feeling. Of course, they went to the third room, they found Emmett in the bed of Uncle Simeon, and they aroused him, and I think they told him to put his shoes on, and he wanted to put his socks on. It was just pure hell over there. Emmett had no idea who he was dealing with. He had no idea what was about to happen to him. He had no way of knowing because he didn't know that way of life. And they left, and that's the last time we saw him alive. So much has been written, you know, and that there's a new film out about Emmett Till's mother, Mamie Till Mobley, and how she carried herself during that time and how she was this symbol of grief, but also strength and just, you know, her determination that the world would see what happened to her her son, to her baby. You know, I tell people, Emmett Bobo was not the first person that suffered at the hands of Southerners. So we were not a stranger to these kind of atrocities. My dad had to sleep with his gun overnight. My uncle told me about people being hung right down the road from where he lived. And that's the kind of atmosphere we grew up in. That's the kind of atmosphere we lived in. And we got along because we stayed in our place. But this story, as God would have it, went, it went ballistic. It went everywhere. And they, the whites were not used to stories getting out like this, out of hand. That's what it was, out of hand. Normally, it stayed within a certain area. A few people learned about it. But this story went everywhere. Paris, France, China, and and now these guys are starting to look bad. Now they got to make it seem like Emmett got what he deserved. That's what they start painting a bad picture of it, Bobo. Not only did he misbehave, he's arrogant with it. I've been with white women before, and I, I've done this. See, I'm not afraid of you all, no. So they tried to justify what happened to Emmett. Normally they wouldn't have to say anything because they would not go anywhere. It would be... Swept on a call. Black people and, were not going to talk about it. And people were so afraid to even say they, they, anything. They wouldn't talk about it. You couldn't get them to say nothing. Their mouth was hush, hush. Even now, they're not going to say too much. When it came to, to Mamie, do you remember, like, talking with her after this happened? Or do you remember, you know, watching her, you know, at the funeral or anything like that? We didn't talk. She never asked me what happened. I always had survivor's guilt. You know, how did she feel about me being here? Her son didn't come back. So we never we never discussed it at all. She just recognized that I was the one with her son. I came back and her son didn't. 
I mean, what has it meant for you to have to carry this legacy? Because you were a kid when this happened, but now you are the elder that is carrying on this story. What has it meant for you to have to make that transition? I think time shapes you and prepare you that you'll be able to carry on. Uh, before his mother died, she came out. We have an Emmett Till Memorial Center. And she came and she saw what we were doing. She said, I want you to carry on the work. And I said, I remember saying yes, but inside I said, what can I do? What can I do? Not knowing that I'll be catapulted to where I am now. God put things in place where when it's God's will, it's his bill. He's going to make sure he put the fire on you to do what you're supposed to do. That's Reverend Willer Parker, Jr. His new book is A Few Days Full of Trouble, Revelations on the Journey to Justice for My Cousin and Best Friend Emmett Till. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you all for having me. I hope I've said something to help and inspire those who have a calling in their life. Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr. is just one member of the civil rights generation we've been profiling on Weekend Edition. You can hear others like on this Jubilee weekend in Selma, Alabama, Miss Joanne Bland, one of Bloody Sunday's youngest foot soldiers. Just go to npr.org and search Civil Rights Generation. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good morning. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for spending part of your Sunday morning with us. Partly cloudy skies today with temperatures in the low 40s, clear skies, 30s overnight, and tomorrow mostly sunny with temperatures in the mid-40s. 36 degrees now in Boston. Still ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday, after her mother died, an Iowa woman got a letter saying she owed more than $200,000 to the state Medicaid program. She didn't even know her mom had been on the health insurance program. That's still ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the wife of Wilston at ART. Pull up a bar stool to the body new comedy by acclaimed author Zadie Smith. Now through March 17th, amrep.org. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. President Biden is due in Selma, Alabama today for the annual commemoration of Bloody Sunday, the day in 1965, when state troopers and sheriff's deputies beat protesters crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge at the start of a voting rights march. A shelter-in-place order is no longer in effect in Clark County, Ohio, where about 20 cars of a Norfolk Southern train derailed late yesterday near Springfield. This latest derailment is Norfolk Southern's fourth in Ohio in less than five months. An NBR star in and NBA star John Morant is apologizing after appearing to brandish a gun at a nightclub during a live stream video on his Instagram account. The Memphis Grizzlies has benched him for at least two games and the NBA is investigating. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from American Cruise Lines, cruising the Maine coast where travelers can experience a lobster bake and explore New England's maritime heritage. Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Justice ministers from across the world made unannounced visits to Ukraine this week. One of them was Attorney General Merrick Garland, who gave NPR's Kerry Johnson an exclusive glimpse at his journey into a country at war. The attorney general's visit followed an invitation from Ukraine's prosecutor general, Andrei Kostin. Let me start this meeting with expression of my sincere gratitude for your presence in Ukraine and participations in United for Justice Conference. Kostin says the group represents a united front for accountability, a legal response to alleged crimes Russia has committed in the course of this war. Merrick Garland describes some of them. We have witnessed shocking attacks on innocent civilians, the destruction of civilian infrastructure, the forced deportation of Ukrainian children, and other blatant violations of international law. Ukrainian investigators are risking their lives, sifting through rubble, examining human remains, all to help investigate war crimes cases. The Ukrainian people have shown the world what courage looks like. One of those courageous civilians is Natalia, a 43-year-old florist from Dnipro in Ukraine, where Russians bombed an apartment building and killed dozens of civilians this year. I met her on the train headed back into her country. She fled with her young son when the war began a year ago. And the trip was horrible because uh, full of uh, full of trains, uh, of people, uh, people stay on trains on floor and we, uh, very cold, uh, so it was horrible trip. Natalia is returning now to go back to work for a few weeks, since her floral business has got lots of orders to fill. But she told her boy it was not safe for him to come home with her. I'm hope, I very hope, uh, everybody wish that this war uh, soon finish uh, and uh, we can stay and have normal life in Ukraine. Legal authorities across Europe say that people like Natalia's friends who died in Dnipro deserve a measure of justice. Unfortunately, Ukraine is a crime scene. That's Karim Khan. He's chief prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. Khan mentioned an old Ukrainian saying that he says applies today. That the truth doesn't drown in water and it does not burn in fire. At the conference in Lviv, international officials signed agreements to share more tips and intelligence about war crime suspects. Again, Merrick Garland. The perpetrators of those crimes will not get away with them. The Justice Department is providing advice and training to people inside Ukraine. American-born forensic investigators are on the ground in the country, and Garland plans to send a prosecutor to work inside Ukraine, too. Together, American and Ukrainian prosecutors have zeroed in on specific crimes committed by Russian forces, including attacks on civilian targets. 
We are working to identify not only the individuals who carried out these attacks, but those who ordered the attacks. Those efforts could take years to bear fruit, but Garland says his Justice Department is in it for the long haul. He says Americans ultimately deported 130 Nazi war criminals from inside the U.S. in the decades after World War II. Another DOJ team is building cases against oligarchs who are helping finance the conflict. U.S. prosecutors also have jurisdiction over people who kill Americans abroad, like volunteer medic Pete Reed, who died last month in Ukraine as he was treating an injured woman. The United States has also opened criminal investigations into war crimes in Ukraine that may violate U.S. law. Although we are still building our cases, interviewing witnesses, and collecting evidence, we have already identified several specific suspects. Congress recently gave the Justice Department authority to bring cases against Russian war criminals who may try to hide inside the U.S. in the years ahead. The issue is a personal one for Garland. Some of his family members who could not escape Europe died in World War II. How and where remains a painful mystery to this day. He described it to me in an interview on his airplane. We know uh, that they were killed in the Holocaust. My father was named for, for one of them. But we don't know really exactly what happened to them. And it's important uh, for families and descendants to know what happened. Um, when there's been a period of atrocities. The Ukrainian people deserve answers, Garland says, just as his family did so long ago. Carrie Johnson, NPR News. Saturday marked the final day of the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC. It's the first time since 2020 that the event is back in the D.C. area. And as NPR's Elena Moore reports, though the mega conference is historically a place for Republicans to lay the groundwork for presidential runs, this time it was all about former President Donald Trump. After three days of back-to-back -back speeches, Trump delivered CPAC's closing act, making his plans for the Republican Party clear that this is not the GOP of 10 years ago. We had a Republican Party that was ruled by freaks, neocons, globalists, open border zealots, and fools. But we are never going back to the... And CPAC has embraced the Trump brand of Republican politics, giving speaking time to many far-right political and media personalities. But missing from the lineup this year? A handful of prominent Republicans mulling potential runs for the White House, notably Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who stands as Trump's biggest primary threat if he enters the race. Still, to many CPAC attendees, Trump's their guy. He's why Lisa Wolf and Melissa Cornwell of Texas are here. He's talked the talk. And he wants to walk the walk and finish the job he began. Trump's name is written all over the walls of CPAC, or really on the shirts, hats, buttons, and stickers of the people walking around. People like Michael Boatman from Indiana. He's a die-hard Trumper who can acknowledge DeSantis is popular, but says it's just not his time yet. He needs to finish his term in Florida and then 2028 run. Let Trump get his four years in. 
And while Trump remains a solid frontrunner, some Republicans see his 2020 loss as a reason to keep their options open. I like Trump's policies a lot. I think he should keep on trying to promote them. I just don't think he should be president. That's Jordan Pirates from Virginia. Republicans like to criticize Biden because of his age and that he's senile. Donald Trump is going to be just as old as Joe Biden is right now. Like, why do we have to have an 80-year-old president? No matter whose side you're on, like, I think most people agree that that's ridiculous. And age plays a key role at CPAC. Over the years, it's been a hotspot for mobilizing young Republican voters. 18-year-old Anna Hopper from Arkansas is one of them. Though she hasn't decided who she'll support in the primary, she says Republicans need to start welcoming more young people ahead of the election. I think we need someone who's genuine, who can connect with the youth and connect in a way that tells them we care about you and we don't just care about you because of your vote. We would appreciate your vote because we respect you as the next generation. And those voters are up for grabs, though Republican candidates aren't paying attention this early, according to Joe Mitchell of Run Gen Z, an organization that encourages young conservatives to run for office. That's not the voting base in the primary, unfortunately. They're going to be going after those red meat issues for older Republican voters, the people that are consistent and will come out and vote. Because at CPAC, it isn't about the voters they could win, it's about engaging voters they already have. This year, it's clear, though, that CPAC is still firmly Trump country. In the straw poll of potential Republican presidential hopefuls, Trump won 62 percent. DeSantis came in second with just 20 percent. Elena Moore, NPR News, National Harbor, Maryland. Medicaid is often described as health insurance for low-income Americans, but Medicaid covers a lot of middle-class Americans, especially when they need long-term care in their later years. And the Medicaid program is growing. Almost 95 million are currently covered. It doesn't always work out perfectly, though. Case in point, Jen Coglin of Perry, Iowa, who joins us now along with Tony Lays, who wrote about her experience for NPR's partner, Kaiser Health News. Tony and Jen, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. So, Jen, tell us, how did your family end up getting involved in dealing with Medicaid? Uh, my mother went in for a knee surgery and... After the surgery, she started hallucinating really badly, and they diagnosed her eventually with Lewy body dementia. And my father especially did not want her to go to a nursing home of any kind. He wanted to keep her at home. So they sent people from uh, the aging health agency in our county, and they signed us up for this medical elderly waiver. And so, Tony, what is this waiver? It's a program that is funded through Medicaid, but it helps families keep people at home instead of putting them in a nursing home. And so I'm sorry to you know hear that after your mom passed away that you actually got this really surprising letter. Yeah, I have it right in front of me. It says, Dear Family of Francis Rule, we've been informed of the death of the above person and we wish to express our sincere condolences. And it says the medical assistant debt in bold at the top of the letter, $226,611.35. That's the debt that you owe to the Medicaid program. Correct. That's what they are saying. The way I guess some people 
would pay an ma- amount like that. They would have to like sell a home or sell property, right? Correct. And when I got this letter, I called the phone number on it immediately. The gentleman, I did not get his name, said it's in the fine print because I said we did not sign up for anything that said we had to pay anything back. And he said it's in the fine print. Tony, you've been following Jen's story. I guess, can you explain, like, what exactly happened here? Well, all state Medicaid programs are required by federal law to have an estate recovery program like this. But what's really striking is that some states are much more aggressive about it than others, including Iowa is one of the most aggressive. And the the idea behind it being that Medicaid is supposed to be a safety net program for people without much money, And so the original idea was if you had a bunch of assets in your estate after you died, it was the state's right to go scoop that to pay back. But the thing is, it winds up hitting families without very many resources, because if you have a pretty good lawyer, you can set things up years ahead of time so that this doesn't happen to you as much. Okay, so can can you talk a bit about that? It really varies by state. What kind of assets are eligible to be recouped this way? But depending on the state you're in, there are various kinds of trusts you can set up, but you have to do it years ahead of time. Uh, You can't do it right when you're signing up for Medicaid. Jen, so obviously this, I I can't imagine the stress that that is to have a $200,000 bill hanging over your head. What comes next for you and your family in this process? I think I just need to wait until my dad passes and see if they decide to put their hand in the pie or not to try to get any money back. I really don't know. Mm. And when you say like just waiting, because your father is still living in the family home, so they can't come after the house while he's in it. Right. But I am extremely stressed as to what's going to happen after he passes. Like that's not going to be stressful enough. Yeah. Who, who wants to think about that? Um, Tony, is there an appeal process? Is there a way that you can, you know, try to get out from under this? There is a hardship waiver that you can apply for. In Iowa, 40 of them were granted last year uh, out of about 3,900 estates that were collected against. So it's it's not an easy thing to get. But yes, sir, you can ask for a hardship waiver to the collection. You talked to the Iowa State Medicaid director. What What did they have to say? Well, they have made it clearer in the last couple of years on the application that you fill out that this is part of the deal. I looked at the paperwork that Jen filled out and it wasn't clear at all on that paperwork. Uh, It is clearer now because the the Medicaid director said they don't like to surprise people with this, but they're required by federal law to do this. So they do it. That's Tony Lays of Kaiser Health News and Jen Coughlin. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. China has kicked off an annual legislative gathering this weekend. While the meetings are increasingly closed off to the public and journalists, they are an opportunity for Communist Party officials to broadly signal their policy priorities. Watching for these signals is NPR's Emily Fang, who joins us now. Hi, Emily. Hey, Asia. So tell us about these meetings. 
So these meetings are called the two sessions in China. And at these meetings, policy proposals are discussed, they are voted on, but there are almost never any dissenting votes. And so the real value of these meetings is the opportunity it gives the party to create political theater. And that theater began today with a speech from China's outgoing premier, Li Keqiang. He presented this work report of the government's achievements over the last year and their goals for this year. You can kind of think of this speech like a Chinese state of the union. And this year, the big takeaway from his report is it is all about economic growth. Lee said China was aiming for a GDP growth of around 5% this year, which is lower than estimates, but China's economy is still suffering from strict COVID controls over the last three years. These controls were suddenly lifted in last December, but now China's desperately trying to give its economy a boost. And here's a little bit from Lee's speech. <laughs> So here, Li is saying that China should give priority to the recovery and expansion of consumption. They want to boost the income of urban and rural residents, and they want to drive investment society-wide. Pretty broad, sweeping statements, and now we have to see if China can pull this off this year. I do want to note the speech was really brief. It was just one hour. I've sat through three-hour versions of this speech in previous years, but it was notable because this is Li's last work report. There's going to be a new premier appointed soon. Li is retiring and a whole host of new officials who are closely associated with the current Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, are about to be sworn in. So this sounds a bit like a, a changing of the guard. Absolutely. And it's a quiet end for Li Keqiang, the premier, who about a decade ago was actually in the running to be potentially the number one leader of China. We know how the story turned out. Xi Jinping beat him out for the position. He's now leader and Li got the number two spot and he's been really deferential to Xi over the years. The two men are really different. Li is this former academic who is sympathetic to liberal ideas of economic reform, less state control, more private business friendly policies. And instead we've gotten Xi Jinping where the communist party has much more influence now in all aspects of Chinese society, including the economy. So it's the end of Li Keqiang and kind of the end of an era. So what else are you looking out for? I'll be looking to see who gets appointments as the next ministers in ministries like defense, industry and technology and the central bank, as well as people who are going to be on China's cabinet. And we kind of know already who's going to be up for these slots since these mostly men were already appointed Communist Party positions last October. So this week, they're now going to get their state government positions. And many of these men come from engineering or technology backgrounds. So that suggests that China's really putting an emphasis policy wise on self-reliance this year, especially after U.S. sanctions on semiconductors in China, and also China watching just how strict Western sanctions have been enforced on Russia. I'm also looking at Xi Jinping because he is going to be formally voted in for a third term as president this week. He's already head of the Communist Party. That's the far more important title. But confirming this third term as president is just another sign of how much power he's been able to consolidate. That's NPR's Emily Fang. Thank you so much. Thanks, Asia. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins is in Alabama today for the commemoration of Bloody Sunday. She's leading a group of attorneys general who will meet with community and civil rights leaders and walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. That's where civil rights marchers were attacked by police with clubs and tear gas in 1965. 
The annual pre-St. Patrick's Day celebration by UMass Amherst students landed 28 in the hospital. The UMass administration and town of Amherst report the students yesterday were treated for alcohol intoxication. The rush of patients put a strain on emergency personnel and hospital staff. The Blarney Blowout, as it's called, has for years been criticized for excessive drinking and for disturbances. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies this afternoon with temperatures climbing into the 40s, clear skies lows in the 30s overnight, mostly sunny tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bernadine Sun Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. And the Gardner Museum. Experience the art and travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner, who traveled the world a century apart. Gardnermuseum.org. I'm Josh Gondelman, filling in for Peter Sagal. Last time on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actress Rosie Perez felt the pressure of our quiz. I listen to this show every single weekend, and I'm always calling out the right answer. But now that I'm in the thick of it, I have no freaking idea. These are ridiculous. (laughs) We'll see how I do in the hot seat on this week's news quiz from NPR. Tonight at 6 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. A year-long battle among billionaires, sealed motions in federal court, a criminal inquiry. A new investigation by ESPN points to anger and infighting as Dan Snyder seeks to end his ownership of his NFL franchise. ESPN senior writer Don Van Natta joins us now with the details. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So Snyder owns the Washington Commanders, and and he's looking to sell the team for up to $7 billion. Um, But as you report, like he's been profiting from the team far over his ownership stake and salary. Can you describe what you found? Well, we discovered an NFL arbitration petition that was filed in 2020. I got my hands on a copy of it. It's a confidential petition. And in that petition, Snyder's three former billionaire partners alleged that Snyder for years was using the Washington commanders as his personal piggy bank. Those are their words that they used against Snyder uh, in an arbitration that the NFL did. One of the things that they allege is that Snyder paid himself four and a half million dollars to put the team's logo on his personal jet. He called it an advertising fee. And really the biggest finding is a $55 million credit line that the partners allege Snyder took out with Bank of America without their knowledge or approval in December of 2018. And they, the partners wanted the NFL to do something about it, but the NFL did nothing about any of these allegations. Instead, 
shut down the arbitration, moved it to mediation, and within a few months, the three billionaire partners were bought out by Dan Snyder. Doesn't Dan Snyder and these other guys, don't they have a lot of money anyway? Why do they need extra money? <laughs> like, don't do. you make a lot of money owning a football team? They, they do. Uh, that's a very good question. The partners own 40% of the team. So their objection was that Snyder was doing things like taking on new debt without their permission. It turns out in this petition, we discover that the team, which is ranked dead last, by the way, in local team revenues and in attendance, was cash poor. So Snyder was finding different ways, they allege, to finance his lavish lifestyle through the team. So now you saw these arbitration documents. Like, what, Was there evidence that you saw beyond that? Or how certain are you about these allegations that are being made against Snyder? Well, there's uh, a lot of certainty to what we have because we don't only have the uh, former partner's petition, but we have a lot of documentation that the partner's lawyers attached to the petition, including bank uh, statements, bank uh, emails, where bank officials from Bank of America were asking for some proof that this $55 million credit line had been approved by the three partners. It's literally a board resolution, a resolution showing the board of directors in which the partner sat on had approved this $55 million loan. We have a letter from Snyder's own lawyers that say there was never a board resolution. And so now there's federal prosecutors in Virginia investigating this matter, uh, literally bank fraud, to see if some bank fraud had been committed by Snyder or other members of the commanders. So, so what do Snyder and the NFL have to say about all this? Snyder says through his lawyer that they're cooperating with the prosecutors in Virginia. Uh, John Brownlee, the counsel for the commanders, declined to answer any of my questions about the $55 million credit line. Uh, the NFL uh, gave us a pretty lengthy statement that took us step by step through the process, but again, did not address specifically questions about Roger Goodell's decision, as well as the NFL arbitrator, to not investigate these allegations made by the three former partners to Snyder. What do you know about how Snyder's fellow team owners are reacting? They're not competitors. They are part of this same overall enterprise that is the NFL or, you know, the same cartel, the same, you know, the same group. Snyder has run out of friends among the ownership group. They're embarrassed by the nonstop negative headlines that have come out since the summer of 2020 about the toxic workplace culture, about allegations of sexual misconduct, and also many allegations, including the ones we reported about financial, alleged financial misconduct. They're hoping that Snyder will sell the team and just move on. But if he doesn't, uh, certainly an option they have is to take a vote and force him out. That's ESPN's Don Van Natta. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Toaster ovens, gloves, earrings, when these things break or tear, we often toss them and buy a new one rather than trying to fix them. I know I do. Martha Biebinger from WBUR takes us to one as it opens in Framingham, Massachusetts. A line of people holding torn backpacks, iPads that won't turn on, and knives gone dull starts forming outside a church social hall a half hour before the doors open. I'm number one, I want to tell everybody. Leslie White Harvey picked up a broken rhinestone wristwatch at a yard sale for a dollar. Isn't it beautiful? 
I have my sports watch, but I'm, sometimes I want to dress up. While she waits, White Harvey volunteers to help with registration and get things moving. Inside the hall, roughly 30 volunteers set up behind sewing machines, grinders, soldering guns, and toolboxes filled with parts and supplies. Organizers Alex Wolfson and Mary Beth Croce confer. Yeah, since it's five up, should we just I unleash? Think, I think unleashing? we unleash. Everyone's set up and ready to go, and the sooner we get them in, the less lines we'll have. Right. Yep. Like this is Framingham's sixth repair cafe. COVID was a major interruption, but Framingham aims for three cafes a year. Croce says she doesn't have any trouble finding people willing to spend a Saturday afternoon fixing items for strangers. Our volunteers love it. And here's one more sewer. Can you guys make room? Toby's really tiny. <laughs> There's a wide range of expertise here. Knitters, electricians, software and mechanical engineers. But it's hard to predict what services will be in demand. We get a lot of people that are jacks of all trades. So we hope for the best. Today, Celine Riard, an interior designer, is focused on a common repair cafe contender, lamps. Riard picks up a stately brass model and twists open the top. Like that little uh, switch is usually the first thing that's going to give up. In a few minutes, Riard is testing a new switch. Yep, it's working. Done. Helping people, fixing things, you know, it really gives you a sense of purpose. Riard scans the room and spots the lamp's owner, June Joyce. She's a volunteer at the jewelry repair table. Excuse me to interrupt. June, is that yours? Yes. It's fixed. That's so perfect. Thank you. And it's so nice to have someone fix your jewelry, too. I mean, she's doing phenomenal. Alik's Law holds a beaded necklace Joyce has just restrung. My great aunt made this, and it didn't have the right chain because it kept on snapping. That was 20 years ago. The necklace became one of those things we just can't let go of, but never get around to fixing. Now the beads are on a sturdy new chain. Together, Joyce and Law designed a way to reuse the broken parts. We're recycling her necklace to make an ankle bracelet. Because otherwise it would just be like scrap. Waste not, want not. Yes. <laughs> In the Netherlands, where repair cafes started, organizers estimate the 2,600 cafes worldwide keep about half a million items out of landfills every year. It's a drop in the bucket, but Wolfson, one of the Framingham organizers, says repair cafes could help shift our throwaway culture. The society we're in is all driven on like digging more things up out of the earth, turning them into products, and then sending them to a landfill as fast as we can. That doesn't seem like a good plan if you think of us living on a finite ball called the earth, because you'll eventually run out of things to dig up and places to throw them. A grinding wheel that can sharpen gardening tools is in high demand on this unusually warm winter day. And the bike repair station is busy too. Ten-year-old Abdul Sanusi rattles off the list of problems with his orange and black BMX. It's the brakes and it doesn't have a cable. And the tires didn't have air. Sanusi says he wasn't that excited to come, but now he keeps wandering away from his bike to check out the watch repairs or the guts of a tape player. It turns out there was like all these things. So then I was like, wow, this place is actually cool. About 20% of things brought in today can't be fixed on the spot or at all. Sanusi's bike needs some parts, but he and most of the 150 or so people who showed up leave smiling, saying they'll be back. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger in Framingham, Massachusetts.
Just as food prices go up, millions of Americans lost some of their benefits from the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And food banks are still trying to keep up with demand. Later today on All Things Considered, how the crisis is quickly turning into an emergency. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. The Ramirez family is incomplete. There's a hole in the middle where Ruthie used to be. Ruthie, the middle daughter who disappeared from a Staten Island bus stop when she was 13. Years later, her sisters see her beauty mark, her laugh, her way of speaking, and a woman named Ruby on a reality TV show. Could this be Ruthie found at last? That's the question driving the novel, What Happened to Ruthie Ramirez? It's Claire Jimenez's debut novel. She teaches English and African-American studies at the University of South Carolina, and she joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to be here. Even before page one of your novel, Ruthie Ramirez is missing. You know, the thing of it is, this is a family like dealing with this collective grief. How did you grapple with how that sort of loss, how it affects the family and how it affects the dynamics of how a family processes pain? Man, I, I knew that I wanted, when I wrote this, this, this book, I knew that I wanted it to have all of the perspectives of the family. And I wanted it to be really woman-centered. Like it had to have all of these women's voices. So it was sort of like a chorus, right? And one of the things that I, I was thinking about, uh, yes, how, how loss and grief and trauma wear on this family, wear on, you know, emotionally and physically too, right? But also like, what is it that they know or don't know about the situation, right? And how does that build towards, you know, the final revelation? There is this idea of this Ruby who's on a reality TV show, you know, this is a very specific type of reality show. So it's kind of like Bad Girls Club. They're fighting. And, the you know, the name of the show on the in the book is Cat Fight. And that's what it's all about. What what drew you to that type of world? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I mean, I'm really interested in reality TV. And I think that one of the things that reveals about the United States specifically is, you know, there was this obsession almost with watching people get humiliated, right? And then when you think mm -hmm. about that in terms of, what happens when it's, you know, the bodies of black and brown women who are the sites of that humiliation, who are the sites of that violence, right? I was really trying to play around with that tension of representation. When are we represented? When are we misrepresented and, and distorted? And um, how can that question about reality, right? Is this really Ruby? How does that resonate as I think about what are real representations of black and brown women in pop culture and media? Do we really, are we really seeing ourselves? But is it also because I watch a lot of reality TV, you know, when you have shows and there are a lot of, you know, white women fighting with each other, people don't necessarily think like, oh, this makes white women look bad. Yeah. Like, is it like that, that That's dynamic? Right. That's right. That's right. You know, it's interesting. You say, you, you're like, I watch reality TV. And it's like, I watch, I watched a lot of reality TV in my <laughs> 20s. And there's this question of like, you know, but why? Why am I obsessed with this? What is happening here? And so that that also is a question that gets played inside of this novel. Like there's really a moment where Nina is watching an episode and they're all fighting each other. And she's like, why can I stop watching? Who's choreographed this violence and why can I stop watching it? 
I, you you know, this story is set and very much shaped by the fact that it's set in, you know, Staten Island. It's right after the Great Recession. This is a Puerto Rican family. Why was it important for you to like give it just this very um, deep sense of like place and time? Mm. Well, I'm from Staten Island. So I know, I know Staten Island very well, you know? And so I knew that I wanted to put it inside of that landscape. I also think that Staten Island is kind of like the stepchild of New York, you know? I thought it would be fun to also use the Staten Island Mall. Um, and in terms of time, I was really interested in the 90s. And I was also really interested in this moment of 2008, right? Because there's the crash. And, you know, there's this way in which the American dream is is tested and it's dying, right? But then we also have Obama elected. I, you know, you mentioned them all. Like, um, do you do you think that this country is losing something by not having that space, you know, mall after mall closing? Um, I guess less Victoria's Secrets and stuff to, to, to work at, um, which is the the um, Nina worked at a lingerie store. Well, I mean, malls are spaces where like teenagers kind of come of age. You know, you don't have to have a lot of money to walk around and, and you know, just buy some tater tots and like window shop, right? It's a cultural time and moment that doesn't really exist anymore. Whether it's for the better or for the worse, I'm not sure. But it's definitely something that, you know, <laughs> I kind of enjoyed uh, capturing inside of the novel. What do you want? I mean, obviously, this is about uh, this is a novel about a loss and dealing with a loss. But I mean, what do you want the audience to gain from reading of this book and, and gain from learning about this family, the Ramirez family? This is a book. It's a it's a book about loss. It's a it's a book about grief and and everything we've talked about. But it's also a book about storytelling, right? And in each way, each you know, these are first person narratives where the women are telling uh, telling their stories and um, letting you know about their life, right? And they're controlling a narrative that for has been taken away from them. And I think that my hope is that somebody reading this feels empowered to tell their own stories and to take control of their own narratives. That's Claire Jimenez. Her novel is called What Happened to Ruthie Ramirez. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at joycefdn.org. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm John Carpilio in Boston, and thanks for being with us on this Sunday morning. It will be a partly cloudy Sunday with temperatures climbing into the 40s. Clear skies overnight, lows in the 30s, mostly sunny tomorrow, mid-40s. And looking ahead to Tuesday, it will be partly to mostly cloudy with temps in the mid-30s. Right now, 37 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering online and on-campus master's in education programs and licensures for teachers. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu.
A new album coming out this month promises something that's never really been heard before, the sounds of the universe. We'll talk with one of the people behind the album and how it can help us better understand the cosmos. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Former President Donald Trump made his case to conservatives at the CPAC conference, but some of his likely 2024 challengers didn't even attend. And hundreds of migrant children are working full-time in factories. How does this happen in the U.S.? We talked to a former labor official. Plus, American Girls' latest historical dolls are based on the 1990s? As if. People are realizing that it's not just feeling old, but it's feeling nostalgia. It's Sunday, March 5th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden is due in Selma, Alabama this afternoon for the anniversary of a seminal moment in the civil rights movement. NPR's Amy Held reports Biden will make the case that the fight for voting rights is ongoing. Today's civil rights leaders say Bloody Sunday is still reverberating. It was March 7, 1965, and the late Congressman John Lewis, then age 25, led hundreds of peaceful protesters. They were met by club-wielding troopers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and beaten. Lewis's skull was fractured. Outrage ensued, and a few months later, the Voting Rights Act passed. But a decade ago, the Supreme Court struck down the heart of the law, easing the way for states to pass voter restrictions. President Biden has tried unsuccessfully to pass another bill in Lewis's name to restore federal protections. Today, he will be flanked by civil rights leaders back in Selma once again demanding change. Amy Held, NPR News. Locally elected prosecutors around the country are facing bills aimed at curbing their discretion. It's a reaction to their stance not to pursue certain crimes. As Brett Jaspers of member station KERA reports from Dallas. Dozens of county prosecutors in Democratic areas said last year they wouldn't pursue cases against people who seek abortions after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down federal abortion rights. That led to a fierce debate over the power of local prosecutors to set policies for which crimes they'll pursue. In Texas, Republican state lawmaker David Cook proposed a bill to ban such policies. If a district attorney wants to pick and choose which laws are good and bad, then he or she should run for the legislature because they're talking about the lawmaking business as opposed to the law enforcement business. 
Some DAs say this is a reaction to prosecutors who use their discretion to reduce the harms of the criminal justice system. I'm Brett Jaspers in Dallas. The derailment of a Norfolk Southern train in Ohio last night is the fourth in the state over the past five months, including the disastrous derailment in East Palestine. This latest derailment happened last night near Springfield. Twenty cars went off the tracks, but Norfolk Southern says this time they were not carrying hazardous materials. Striking rail workers have joined thousands of demonstrators in the Greek capital amid anger over Tuesday's rail disaster that killed at least 57 people. Here's the BBC's Elector Naismith. The anger over Tuesday's collision between a passenger and a freight train near Larissa shows no sign of subsiding. They've been processed all week and tensions were high in Athens as violence broke out between police and protesters in front of the parliament building. They'd released hundreds of black balloons in memory of the dead, some holding signs reading down with killer governments. Train and metro services have been paralysed since the tragedy. Striking rail workers are furious at what they say is the thirst for profit resulting from privatisation and the lack of measures taken for passenger protection. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm John Carpilio in Boston. An investigation is underway into the death of a passenger on a business jet that hit turbulence after taking off from Keene, New Hampshire. The National Transportation Safety Board says the jet was on its way to Virginia when it ran into trouble Friday afternoon. The jet had five people on board. It diverted to Bradley International Airport in Connecticut. Aviation safety experts are watching the investigation into a near miss at Logan Airport. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports federal investigators are expected to be thorough in reviewing last week's incident. That's a Logan Air traffic controller telling a private jet to line up and wait before takeoff. The recording was posted on liveatc.net. The pilot didn't follow the command, forcing a JetBlue flight to change course to avoid a crash. Aviation consultant John Cox says federal investigators will try to pinpoint the miscommunication. That will be the crux of it as to whether the flight crew just misunderstood it or if there was ambiguity in the way that the controller instructed it or could there be radio interference. Federal officials have not given a timeline for the investigation. Cox says it could take months to complete. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Framingham Democratic Committee Chair Mike Hugo is stepping down after facing public pressure over recent comments. In a public meeting last month, Hugo drew a connection between aborting pregnancies of fetuses with birth defects and special education costs. State Senate President Karen Spilka and State Representative Jack Lewis both publicly urged Hugo to step down. A Northeastern University sophomore will redesign a Dorchester basketball court in partnership with Celtic star Jalen Brown. Kea Santos' design for the Fenelon Street playground includes bright colored lightning bolts, zigzags, and other abstract shapes. Brown helped pick the winning design. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies today, low 40s, clear 30s overnight, mostly sunny mid-40s tomorrow, 37 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thanks for joining us here today. This past week was all about the conferences. House Democrats held their annual caucus issues conference in Baltimore and in nearby National Harbor. The conservatives held their annual meeting, the Conservative Political Action Conference or CPAC, where former President Donald Trump made a hefty campaign speech. In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. NPR's national political correspondent, Mara Lyason, is on the line with us now. Good morning, Mara. Good morning, Aisha. So let's start with what we just heard. Like, was CPAC all about Trump? It sure was. From the Trump merch to the straw poll that Trump handily won to that one hour and 45 minute long speech, this was all about Trump. It's why many people there were calling it TPAC instead of CPAC. But CPAC is the hot molten core of the Republican base, and a big portion of that base is still with Trump, even though many Republicans, including many conservatives at CPAC, were also talking about moving on to newer, younger candidates. Okay, so we had Nikki Haley, who has declared her candidacy speak, as did Mike Pompeo, who has not announced his candidacy, but is considered to be a potential candidate. Both took swipes at Trump without naming them, you know, saying things like how the GOP should avoid, quote, following celebrity leaders. Um, But not all of the players were there. Ron DeSantis, um, for instance, didn't show up. So what is the state of play with this primary uh, for 2024? I think there are three big questions that remain to be answered. Number one, will there be a multi-candidate group of alternatives that split the anti-Trump vote, allowing him to get the nomination the same way he did in 2016, basically by getting a plurality, not a majority of votes? He could squeak through with 35 percent or 40 percent. Number two, Will Republicans coalesce around an alternative to Trump, just one candidate? If that candidate is Ron DeSantis, and he certainly has captured the hearts of the Republican donor class, uh, how will he take on Trump? So far, DeSantis has brushed off every question about Trump, but Trump has already started to attack DeSantis, and at CPAC, without naming him, uh, he clearly attacked DeSantis by saying, we're not going back to people that, quote, want to destroy our great social security system. DeSantis voted many times in Congress to privatize social security. And then the third question, uh, which is, if Trump doesn't get the nomination, will he decide to burn the whole thing down, run as an independent, possibly helping elect a Democrat? Uh, he sure seemed pretty mad at the Republican Party and the Republican establishment this weekend. Now, let's talk about the thing that everyone was talking about at the House Democrats Issues Conference, and that's President Biden's decision to not veto a piece of legislation backed by Republicans that would undo portions of a new D.C. crime bill. Um, So there's a lot in that sentence, but like basically it all started with D.C. Council's um, decision to reform parts of the district's criminal code, right? That's right. Some of the changes would mean lessening the penalties for offenses like carjacking. The D.C. mayor, Muriel Bowser, who's also a Democrat, vetoed the bill, but the council overrode her. And then House Republicans, with help from 31 House Democrats, passed legislation overturning the D.C. code. They said it was soft on crime. And then President Biden on Thursday pretty much chose politics over principle. He said he was for D.C. statehood. He's for home rule. 
but he clearly doesn't want Democrats to be on the wrong side of the crime issue. Uh, and this is an election year. You already saw Democrats like uh, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot get defeated because of this issue. But the problem was Biden didn't tell Democrats in advance that he was going to sign the bill. I mean, so in the 30 seconds we have left, it seems like the political execution of this was problematic for some Democrats. That's right. That's right. There were criminal justice activists who were angry about the substance, but mostly Democrats felt that a lot of them voted against the bill, thinking he would veto it. Now they're in a tough spot. They're stuck having voted against it, and it's going into law. That's NPR national political correspondent Mara Liason. Thanks, Mara. Thank you. Hundreds of migrant children are working long hours under grueling conditions in the U.S. Most of them come into the country alone, in need of ways to support themselves and their families back home. But overnight shifts and dangerous work violate longstanding child labor laws. Brandeis professor David Weil has worked as a senior official in the U.S. Labor Department under then-President Obama. He joins me now. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Reuters and the New York Times have recently published investigations about how children as young as 13 are working full-time jobs, like in factories and at, at construction sites, which is against the law. Has this practice grown in the past several years? Because it just, it feels so shocking to even state that. It, it really is shocking and it has really exploded in the last few years. Um, there's always been problems of child labor in different sectors, but we haven't seen such widespread numbers of children working in meat packing and in auto manufacturing and food production since really the 1930s. Part of the, the issue is that you have these big name companies like Hyundai and General Mills, and then they use these subcontractors. And these subcontractors then use staffing agencies to make their hires. And so it seems like everything is being outsourced and that makes it easier for companies to pass the buck. Like, is that right? Yes, I think that's very true. And in fact, it's, it's really the culmination of a change we've seen for a long time in our economy, where lead companies like Hyundai, uh, like General Mills, used to have their own direct employees. And they have begun to use more and more contractors and then subcontractors, staffing agencies, labor brokers to carry out their work and to continue to pursue their branded work, but distancing themselves from all the responsibilities that normally should come with employment, including making sure that children aren't working in their facilities. Are these companies willfully hiring minors or do they just not bother to check? Or are these children using fake papers? Like what's happening? Well, it's a little bit of all of those things. And it, and it gets back to the fact that there are often these labor brokers or staffing agencies who are locally seeking these children. But at the same time, they're then feeding them into these larger companies that should have practices to detect whether they're actually hiring large numbers of children. So why aren't federal and state governments able to crack down on this? Well, one of the biggest problems is our main federal agencies, like the Wage and Hour Division that I used to head, 
um, have not been adequately resourced for years. So, you know, I've done a calculation of how many investigators relative to the workplaces that they're responsible for we have now compared to 1938 when this agency was started. And the agency in 1938 had 64 times the relative number of inspectors to workplaces. Um, and we've under-resourced our agencies. We've under-resourced the solicitor's office that does the legal support to bring cases like this. And if you overlay that with this kind of complexity we now have in the workplace, where you have all these layers of people between the workers and the lead companies, it makes that task all the more difficult. Some 130,000 unaccompanied minors came into the U.S. last year. The media investigation suggests that the federal government is giving at least some of these children to sponsors who then end up sending the kids to work instead of sending them to school and that those sponsors then take the children's wages. Like, why is this happening? I mean, whenever you have an explosion like this of so much child labor, you have to say there must be multiple things breaking down. One side that is breaking down is the restructuring of businesses. But the other side is we are seeing an unprecedented number of unaccompanied children. And from the reporting we've seen in the New York Times most recently, the kind of vetting that normally the Health and Human Services Department should be doing have not been doing diligently. And that's leading some of these children to not be going to the homes of relatives, to people who care for them. And that only adds to their vulnerability and both their need to find economic opportunity and then their vulnerability if they're being put and placed in jobs that they clearly shouldn't be, like in meatpacking. The Biden administration has said that it plans to crack down on illegal child labor. What do you think would be some effective solutions? Clearly, HHS needs to very quickly change their policies to make sure that these children, when they are brought into this country, are well protected. And that means not only being sent to responsible households, but making sure that they have economic support so that they don't face the kind of pressure that's leading them to seek this kind of work. At the same time, you need to have our enforcement agencies to have the capacity to pursue these cases all the way up the chain, all the way to the top companies at the lead of these practices. And, um, and this is what would take Congress to act on, to have higher consequences when you violate child labor penalties. That's Brandeis Professor David Weil. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good morning. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us on this Sunday morning. It will be partly cloudy today with temperatures in the low 40s, clear 30s overnight, and sunshine 40s tomorrow. Still ahead on weekend Sunday. After a year of war, Russia and Ukraine have lost many of their best troops. The problem for Ukraine is Russia has a far larger pool of troops to send in. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. 
We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. And Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org tanglewood. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Another Norfolk Southern train has derailed in Ohio, the fourth in five months. About 20 cars derailed late yesterday near Springfield. The company says no hazardous materials were involved. However, authorities in Clark County say they are working to make sure. Texas Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez has been censured by his state party. The censure vote came at a meeting in Austin. Gonzalez has crossed conservatives with some of his votes on Capitol Hill, including on gun safety and immigration. And Alaska's Iditarod sled dog race is officially underway. Competition begins today after yesterday's fan-friendly ceremonial start in downtown Anchorage. With 33 mushers, the field is the smallest in race history. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staplesconnect.com. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at wtgrantfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The Russian and Ukrainian armies have burned through many of their best soldiers in the past year. The problem for Ukraine is that Russia still has far more troops. NPR's Frank Langfit reports from Ukraine's Donbass region. Max is a Ukrainian sniper. This morning, he's oiling his rifle to ACDC outside his reconnaissance team's safe house in the city of Kramatorsk in the east of the country. The team was operating in enemy territory the night before. They cleared a trench of six Russian troops that a fellow soldier had killed with a machine gun. The contents of the Russians' backpacks now lie on the ground outside the safe house. Pairs of socks, a magazine for an AK-47, two magazines, a grenade, several grenades. It's like just a little rubber band. Oh, these are just really terrible tourniquets. They're such poor quality. They're just little rubber strips. Andri, the team leader, oversees more than 100 recon soldiers here. Those people that we took these things from, they were really young, really, really young, no older than 25 years old. They have been provided with nothing. Andri says the dead soldiers were most likely convicts working with Wagner, the Russian mercenary group. He said they wore Ukrainian-style uniforms produced in Russia. 
Andrei describes their general tactics. They approach our position saying, no, don't shoot. We are your people. This is how they try to get close to us. Our soldiers start to think, okay, it's our camouflage, so maybe it is our people. Until the last moment, in the case last night, they didn't know whether they killed their own or Russians. So how are you sure that it wasn't your own people? We found their radios, their phone, Andre says, which were Russian. Max, Andre, and their teammates share a private house they commandeered. It's a mix of cozy domesticity and modern weaponry common near the front. Max sleeps on a sofa with a stuffed bunny for a pillow. On the floor sits a 50 caliber sniper rifle with a giant scope. Andre, 30, is the more cerebral of the two. He studied history of the Middle Ages at university in the western city of Lviv. As for Max, who's 33... I was a football hooligan, and I was a farmer. This subculture of football hooligans, it's a small army. I have a feeling that my whole life, it was preparing me for this war. Both he and Andre, who used to make dentures for a living, joined the army for patriotic reasons after Russia invaded Crimea in 2014. Over coffee at the kitchen table, Andre told me more about the Wagner convicts Ukraine is fighting. They've been told you either sit in the prison or you'll get your freedom in the battlefield. They are now just used as meat. They push them in waves and waves and waves. Max says the Russians sometimes also use new conscripts to draw Ukrainian fire to reveal their positions. They pick the simplest way of working with less motivated troops. They push them forward under the threat of being shot. They just go until they stumble into the enemy. Then the Russians see where we are and say, let's drop artillery there. Andrei says although Russian conscripts aren't well motivated, their numbers are huge. The Russian mobilizational reserve is pretty much infinite, which means that they have the luxury to make mistakes. They can lose a brigade or they can lose a platoon, and some of those people are going to survive and they can share experience with the new conscripts. In November, the Pentagon estimated both sides had lost more than 100,000 troops each to death and injury. But Andrei says the math is on Moscow's side. Russia's population is about four times Ukraine's. And, Andrei says, the Ukrainian army has motivational problems of its own. Most of the people that were ready to take guns and fight, they came in the first two months, and those people are coming to an end. Andrei means they're dead. He says the quality of the new soldiers is much lower. Some of them, he tells me, they don't know how to hold a rifle. And Max says, even if they do, there's some who don't want to use it. Max recalls a time in the Ukrainian city of Solodar, about 40 miles east of here, where his team prepared an ambush. A group of Russian soldiers were leading a column, serving as the vanguard. And I saw a man at the front with a camouflage jacket and a Russian patch on it. He looked like he was walking at the front of a parade. He didn't know we were 50 to 60 meters from him. Then some of our guys did something stupid. They shouted at him, stop. Why did your soldiers tell him to stop? Because you probably know the statistics, not every soldier can kill when it comes to it. Since in Ukraine there are so many Christians, up to the last moment, they will try to not take a life. The funniest thing is, after I finished off the Russian soldier with four shots to his chest and he fell down, all of our guys started to shoot. Ukraine still vows to push Russian soldiers out of the country. President Volodymyr Zelensky had this message for those still living under occupation. Ukraine 
не залишила вас. Україна hasn't abandoned you, hasn't forgotten you, hasn't forsaken you. One way or another, we will liberate all our lands. The view from the front line is more skeptical. Andrei's best case scenario is this. We can be realists, and to speak as a realist, the conflict is going to be frozen. Max has a worst-case scenario. Russia takes the eastern half of Ukraine. After I met Max, he was injured in a firefight, taking shrapnel to his legs, arm, and elsewhere. He sent a voice memo from his hospital bed. It was cowboy-style shooting. We started to think what to do next when shrapnel from a grenade hit my butt. Then they started to hit us with multiple grenade launchers from both sides. I crawled into the trench and they bandaged my butt. But since I was the leader of the group, I couldn't let the guys simply die. So I took a rifle and I started firing back. This is the first time Max has been wounded since he began fighting the Russians nearly nine years ago. He says he doesn't know how long he will take to recover. Frank Langford, NPR News, Kramatorsk. China has kicked off an annual legislative gathering this weekend. While the meetings are increasingly closed off to the public and journalists, they are an opportunity for Communist Party officials to broadly signal their policy priorities. Watching for these signals is NPR's Emily Fang, who joins us now. Hi, Emily. Hey, Asia. So tell us about these meetings. So these meetings are called the two sessions in China, and at these meetings, policy proposals are discussed, they are voted on, but there are almost never any dissenting votes. And so the real value of these meetings is the opportunity it gives the party to create political theater. And that theater began today with a speech from China's outgoing premier, Li Keqiang. He presented this work report of the government's achievements over the last year and their goals for this year. You can kind of think of this speech like a Chinese state of the union. And this year, the big takeaway from his report is it is all about economic growth. Li said China was aiming for a GDP growth of around 5% this year, which is lower than estimates, but China's economy is still suffering from strict COVID controls over the last three years. These controls were suddenly lifted in last December, but now China's desperately trying to give its economy a boost. And here's a little bit from Li's speech. So here, Li is saying that China should give priority to the recovery and expansion of consumption. They want to boost the income of urban and rural residents, and they want to drive investment society-wide. Pretty broad, sweeping statements, and now we have to see if China can pull this off this year. I do want to note the speech was really brief. It was just one hour. I've sat through three-hour versions of this speech in previous years, but it was notable because this is Li's last work report. There's going to be a new premier appointed soon. Li is retiring and a whole host of new officials who are closely associated with the current Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, are about to be sworn in. So this sounds a bit like a a changing of the guard. Absolutely. And it's a quiet end for Li Keqiang, the premier, who about a decade ago was actually in the running to be potentially the number one leader of China. We know how the story turned out. Xi Jinping beat him out for the position. He's now leader and Li got the number two spot and he's been really deferential to Xi over the years. The two men are really different. Li is this former academic who is sympathetic to liberal ideas of economic reform, less state control, more private business friendly policies. And instead we've gotten Xi Jinping where the communist party has much more influence now in all aspects of Chinese society, including the economy. So it's the end of Li Keqiang and kind of the end of an era. So what else are you looking out for? 
I'll be looking to see who gets appointments as the next ministers in ministries like defense, industry and technology and the central bank, as well as people who are going to be on China's cabinet. And we kind of know already who's going to be up for these slots since these mostly men were already appointed communist party positions last October. So this week, they're now going to get their state government positions. And many of these men come from engineering or technology backgrounds. So that suggests that China's really putting an emphasis policy-wise on self-reliance this year, especially after U.S. sanctions on semiconductors in China, and also China watching just how strict Western sanctions have been enforced on Russia. I'm also looking at Xi Jinping because he is going to be formally voted in for a third term as president this week. He's already head of the Communist Party. That's the far more important title. But confirming this third term as president is just another sign of how much power he's been able to consolidate. That's NPR's Emily Fang. Thank you so much. Thanks, Asia. How do you remember the 90s? Jurassic Park and The Matrix, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and AOL, Tupac and Biggie. Or how about this? Wanna be by the Spice Girls. Now the American Girl doll franchise wants to give a shout out to the decade. The company has been releasing dolls since 1986, depicting girls throughout the country's history, like Felicity, caught between the loyalists and patriots in 1770s Williamsburg, Virginia, and Claudie, living during the Harlem Renaissance. Now there's a set of twins from the 90s, Isabel and Nikki Hoffman. Isabel and Nikki are nine-year-old fraternal twins growing up in Seattle, Washington in 1999 with their mom, who's a tech worker helping to fix the Y2K bug, and their dad, an independent coffee shop owner. That's Julia DeVillers, who wrote Isabel and Nikki's stories with her twin sister, Jennifer Roy. Isabel is extroverted, and she loves dancing to pop music. Nikki is thoughtful, introverted, and she's happiest while skateboarding, writing her zines and song lyrics, and listening to alt-rock sound that got its start in Seattle, where they live. The Villers and Roy were kids of the 1990s, though not in Seattle, and wanted to incorporate the era's fashion and culture into the doll's story. You can see some of the 90s artifacts on the American Girl TikTok account with Isabel and Nikki playing. Things from the 90s you may have forgotten about. Like Tamagotchi. No, please don't die. Blow up furniture. Beware of thighs getting stuck on this. Chokers. This goes with every outfit. Landlines. Hello. And dial-up internet. Come on already. You have no idea how this works, do you? But check in the comments and you'll see the disbelief from millennials who are realizing their childhood is historic. I feel disrespected. I feel attacked. I'm having an existential crisis. Help, I'm withering to dust. But Jennifer Roy says... People are realizing that it's not just feeling old, but it's feeling nostalgia. And that's what a lot of these uh, accessories and the dolls themselves, and the books, of course, the stories, that's what we want them to bring out. Yeah, people are saying that they feel seen. And, you know, isn't that something that you want when you're reading a book and bringing some characters into the world? Plus, DeVillers and Roy think the dolls can bridge a gap between children and their parents who grew up in the 90s. To children, this is history. And they have no idea what uh, some of these things are. 
we are living history right now. So, you know, in the future, people will look back as history. So historical doesn't necessarily have to be negative. It can also mean, you know, important enough to remember. That's Julia DeVillers and Jennifer Roy, authors of the stories behind the new American Girl doll. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. The Biden administration is expected to announce possibly this week whether it's greenlighting a major ConocoPhillips oil drilling development in the Alaska Arctic. The Willow Project would allow more than 200 wells and hundreds of miles of pipeline, some of it near caribou migration paths and valuable bird habitat. Liz Ruskin with Alaska Public Media has been covering this closely, and she joins us now from Anchorage. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Aisha. So, Liz, where would this drilling take place? Willow would be in a huge area of federal land, a reserve the size of Indiana. It's called the National Petroleum Reserve. And just to be clear, Willow is different from the controversy over drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, but environmental advocates say this area is like the refuge in its value to wildlife. So uh, President Biden had pledged no new drilling on federal land when he ran for office. So why is this oil project being considered? I would think because these projects take forever to come together. But you tell me more about that. Yeah, this was a lease Conoco acquired in 1999, and the development won federal approval in 2020, but then there was a lawsuit requiring a do-over, so proponents argue it's not really a new drilling project, but it's substantial and would produce oil for an estimated 30 years. So who is urging the Biden administration to approve this oil project, you know, besides ConocoPhillips? Pretty much the whole Alaska political and business establishment, the entire Alaska legislature, organized labor, Alaska native leaders, all three members of the congressional delegation. And while the oil industry's been in decline in Alaska, this project would bring up to $10 billion to the state and local governments. Indigenous residents on the North Slope say oil revenues will help sustain their Inupiaq culture. How are they saying that oil drilling will help to sustain their traditional culture? An Alaska legislator from the Arctic, Josiah Putkatuk, was in Washington, D.C., outside the Capitol Wednesday, making that case. Putkatuk is Inupiaq. They are people who have relied on subsistence whaling for over a thousand years. Just to live where they do, Putkatuk says they need the revenue that comes from oil production. And that's why it's important to underscore the opportunities for a better quality of life, staying away from the third world conditions that the generation immediately before me grew up in, 
I should say that Petkatek's view is the prevailing opinion among Alaska Native leaders, but in the community closest to where the drilling would be, there's substantial opposition from the mayor and the tribe. Despite all the support for this, the White House has come under pressure over this pending decision. Why is that? Environmental groups and their allies in the Biden administration say approving this oil development would be a terrible move, in part because President Biden has said he's committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions and moving away from oil. The oil produced from Willow, when it's burned as fuel, would create a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. Opponents liken it to the annual output of 70 or so coal-fired power plants. That's Liz Ruskin of Alaska Public Media in Anchorage. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. My pleasure. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Good morning. A COVID-19 outbreak at a South Yarmouth nursing home has now claimed the lives of five residents there, according to the Boston Globe. It began last month and has since caused more than 90 additional cases among residents and staff. Last week, the state ordered Windsor Skilled Nursing and Rehabilitation Center to stop accepting new patients during the current outbreak. T-Riders are boarding shuttle buses for red line service between Harvard and JFK UMass stations today. It's to allow for installation of a new digital signal system. Shuttles are not stopping at Park Street or Downtown Crossing. Framingham Democratic Committee Chair Mike Hugo is stepping down after facing public pressure over recent comments. In a public meeting last month, Hugo drew a connection between aborting pregnancies of fetuses with birth defects and special education costs. Among those calling for him to step down, State Senate President Karen Spilka. In the forecast, partly cloudy today, temps in the low 40s, clear skies, 30s overnight, mostly sunny mid-40s tomorrow, 37 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Habib & Associates Architects, serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR, HabibARCH.com, and Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. As the science advances by leaps and bounds, researchers, bioethicists, and patients are debating the thorny issues around new gene editing technologies. The problem before us now is to make sure that we lay out the guidelines and the rules. How do we place guardrails on human gene editing without limiting its medical promise? On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at LodestarFoundation.org and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us today is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle 
Monster of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Aisha. You know, every time I hear your voice, it makes me smile. And, and hearing your voice makes me smile. So the, the feeling is mutual. <laughs> Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Jim Francis of Kirkland, Washington. I said, take this equation, 14 plus 116 plus 68 equals 47. Now, obviously, that doesn't work mathematically, but it does work in a non-mathematical way, and I asked to explain. Well, the atomic numbers 14, 116, and 68 represent the chemical elements silicon, livermorium, and erbium, respectively, and the symbols for these elements spell silver, S-I-L-V-E-R, which has the atomic number 47. Yes, yeah, so y'all got real complicated while I was out, but that's <laughs> but that's okay. Um, you know, for the people um, that did play the puzzle, y'all did great. Out of nearly 500 correct submissions, Sherry Bone of Big Flats, New York, is the puzzle winner. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And how long have you been playing the puzzle, Sherry? And I have to say, you sang us a little ditty um, that you wrote about the puzzle, so I know the answer to this. It was a great ditty, but how long have you been playing the puzzle? I've been playing over 15 years. Well, I am glad that your time has finally come. What do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? I um, am writing children's books. I'm in the middle of writing a murder mystery. I paint. I'm a pandemic painter and I garden. And uh, so, yeah, I I keep pretty busy. All right. Well, Sherry, I got to ask you, are you ready to play the puzzle? Oh, yes, I am. I'm more than ready. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. It's about time. Take it away, Will. All right, Sherry and Aisha. Today's puzzle is called Reversible Words. I'm going to give you clues for two compound words. Switch the order of the parts in one to get the other. For example, if I said support as principles and cause for a delay, you would say uphold, which means support as principles, and hold up, which is a cause for a delay. Okay, got it. Number one, a bit of movie filming that ends up not being used and a dining option at a restaurant. A bit of movie. Um, How about like, um, oh, outtake and takeout. You got it. Number two, an aching head on the morning after and place for a gutter on a house. Okay, that one's pretty easy. Hangover and overhang. You got it. A breakfast item you put maple syrup on and a bakery container. A pancake and a cake pan. That's it. Try this one. A $10 bill in slang. And a cutting tool that needs two hands. Uh, something saw. A saw. Uh, yes. Uh, and what do they call it? A $10 bill is a saw? A saw, not a saw bill. A saw, saw, help me out here. Saw. Saw hand. So you have a saw. What is a $1 bill called in slang? A buck. Saw buck. A buck saw. Okay. There you go. Okay. A decline in economic activity and refusal. Decline in economic activity is a something down refusal. It starts with down, yes. A downturn, downturn and turn down. You got it. Here's your last one. To distract from thinking about the immediate issue and a spectator area immediately next to where horses race. Oh, 
Oh, darn. Um, a rail, handrail, a rail. Uh... No, neither of those, neither of those parts is right. Um, if you distract someone, you get them thinking about something else. So you get them uh, off track. Track, uh, track. You got it. Yeah, yeah. It's uh -huh. off track. Is it off track? No, but the no. track is right. The track, um, track side, off side track, side track, side track, and track side. Side track and track side. Good job. Oh my goodness. Woo, that was a tough one. But Sherry, you did a great job. How do you feel? I I feel great. I feel excited that I I'm done and really excited that I'm done. <laughs> but I feel good about the whole thing. This was great. I had fun. Yes. Well, you did a wonderful job for playing our puzzle today. You'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org/puzzle. And Sherry, what member station do you listen to? WSKG. That's Sherry Bone of Big Flats, New York. Thanks for playing the puzzle. Thank you for having me. I had a wonderful time. So, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from the screenwriter and comedian Mike Reese. Name something scary in two words. Five of the letters are vowels, which are all the same. And the consonants are all Roman numerals. What scary thing is this? So, again, something scary in two words. Five of the letters are vowels, they're all the same, and the consonants are all Roman numerals. What scary thing is this? Hmm, I should be able to get this one, but I'm going to think about it. Uh, when you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, March 9th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Aisha. How many times have you been in some kind of text exchange with a friend, a colleague, maybe your partner, and suddenly it looks like out of nowhere, things have gone south? I have been there. Well, artificial intelligence can help. Researchers at Cornell University are working on an AI tool called Convo Wizard. Basically, it works like a browser extension and warns you when it senses things may be getting tense in your text exchange. We're joined now by Professor Christian Danescu Nicolescu Mizio, who is one of the creators of the tool. Welcome to the show. Hi, Isha. How does Convo Wizard sense when a conversation is getting heated? We have an algorithm that together with my student, Jonathan Chang, uh, we developed um, over the last few years trying to model the dynamics within a conversation, right? The magic really comes from the fact that we teach the computer to have an intuition about where the conversation is going by showing them a lot of conversation, millions of conversations. It's really interesting because I think we all kind of have an intuition about when the conversation is getting tense. The problem is to act on that intuition in the heat of the moment, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. It's actually harder when you're not talking face-to-face -face when you're online. You are actually missing those signals. So what we're doing with this tool is trying to supplement our intuition. It's supposed to like dial down the situation. So I guess if you could just show me how it, it works. 
this is a conversation about the Supreme Court. So this is a community that we have collaborated with. This is a Change My View. It's a pretty large community. They have like about 3 million subscribers. And they have a very nice space for discussing controversial topics. Okay, so what I'm seeing here now is this discussion is getting somewhat tense because this person has already said, basically, like, you should think how little you know about the court. And, and But see, I see Convo Wizard is now saying this comment might, it's turning red and it's saying might increase the tension. Yeah. Can you make it even, you can actually make it redder. You can try. The way you would do that is you would be like, who do you think you are to tell me? <laughs> who do you think you are? Yeah, okay, it's very red now. <laughs> and and why make it so that it just kind of nudges the user? Why a nudge instead of saying, don't say that, or giving like, say it this way or something? Our, our goal is not to constrain the, the people that are having the conversations. Like we, we believe that, it's ultimately their decision, what they want to say. There's also another aspect here where we have to recognize that these signals are really read by an algorithm. Algorithms are biased and therefore using an algorithm to constrain your conversations can be, um, can be very problematic from an ethical perspective. You're testing this tool out on Reddit, but where else do you imagine people would use it? Like, do you see it being used on Twitter, on Slack, WhatsApp? Yeah, we, we imagine that this tool could be useful in many places where well-intentioned participants uh, might need some aid to their already existing intuition, right? Have you learned anything about de-escalating language? So we started by looking at what people actually do to de-escalate their own conversation. And what we're finding is actually that People, when they uh, try to de-escalate the situation, they use more polite language. They try to be less direct. Um, they use more formal language sometimes. And importantly, they try to use more objective statements, right? So less subjectivity and more objective statements. It's really interesting that we actually do have those skills, but we sometimes forget to use them. That's Christian Danescu Nicolescu Mizio. Associate Professor at Cornell University's Department of Information Science. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Aisha. The Houston Astros won the World Series in 2017, but it later came out that the team had cheated, stealing pitching signs. So how much of that victory was due to cheating? I think this is both an impossible and unfortunate question. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, a new book, Winning Fixes Everything, breaks down the scandal. To listen, stream NPR on your phone or computer, or just listen to us on the radio. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once is a front runner for the Oscars, and yesterday the film also picked up seven film independent spirit awards. Comedian Hassan Minhaj hosted the event, held at a tent on the beach in Santa Monica. NPR's Mandelite Del Barco was there. In the multiverse of Hollywood ceremonies, Everything Everywhere All at Once won in every Spirit Award category for which it was nominated, including Best Feature and Best Director for the Daniels, as they're known. Daniel Shiner. Thank you for everybody who makes 
crazy, weird, independent movies. And Daniel Kwan. What we do here is going to flow upstream to the rest of the industry. I urge you all to plant some seeds now today, figure out how can we make a, a movie set more family-friendly and human-centered? How can we make a movie set eco-friendly? Can we get to net zero with a film set? I don't know, but let's dream big. For the first time, the Spirit Awards presented gender-neutral acting awards. Michelle Yeoh, who plays the mother in Everything Everywhere, won the big prize, Best Lead Performance. And I want to dedicate this to all our mothers. Without our mothers, none of us would be here. Yo's co-star, Ki Hui Kwan, got the award for Best Supporting Performance. I am so happy uh, that so many people have seen our movie, and uh, at times I am overwhelmed by the outpouring of love that you all have show, continued to show us. Stephanie Hsu, who plays the daughter in the movie, accepted her award for Best Breakthrough Performance. I came from the world of downtown experimental theater, and it is one of my biggest prides to be from that community of knowing how to make something out of nothing, knowing how to support one another, doing it just because you love doing it. These awards honor films and shows made in the spirit of independence. For that, another Oscar-nominated film won this year's Robert Altman Award for ensemble cast, Women Talking. Director and screenwriter Sarah Pauly accepted the award, surrounded by some of the cast members. Watching the way that this group of people supported and held each other and worked as a collective honestly changed my feeling about the world and about what we're capable of as human beings. And I'm so proud that I get to stand up here with you. There were other Spirit Awards that are Oscar nominated, like After Sun, which won for Best First Feature, and Tar for Best Cinematography. Pakistan's Oscar entry, Joyland, won for Best International Film. The winner of the Truer Than Fiction Award went to the documentary, I Didn't See You There. It was shot from the point of view of director and narrator Reed Davenport in his electric wheelchair. He got a standing ovation at the ceremony when he asked his colleagues to let more disabled people into the film industry. It's time. This year, the Spirit Awards were live-streamed, not broadcast, but they honored television shows such as Pachinko and The Bear. Actress Iowa Debris, who's in The Bear, got a supporting performance award. This is really nice because I'm in a room full of a lot of people who I really admire and look up to, but there's also a lot of people who look like me and feel like me, and that's really nice. Quinta Brunson said her TV show, Abbott Elementary, is made in the spirit of collaboration. She dedicated her award to whatever kid is making content on TikTok right now. That little TikTok video, whatever comes out at the time, might be splish splash when you're a kid. I hope that you know that with enough care for your craft, you can make it to win an award. So thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All of the winners gave uplifting speeches. By contrast, the ceremony's host and former Daily Show correspondent Hassan Minhaj wasn't in the same spirit. Award shows are dead. My two-year-old watches slime videos with more views than the Oscars. But you all showed up, which means that you're truly in it for the love of the game. No one asked you to make the movies you made, and honestly, no one watched them. That joke got a lot of groans in the room, but the last laugh may be the Spirit Award winners winning everything at the Oscars next Sunday. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good morning. I'm John Carpilio. Coming up next, the interdenominational Sunday service of worship from the Daniel L. Marsh Chapel on the Boston University campus. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington and Front Porch Arts Collective with KISSING, a funny date night play and love letter to our city, now through April 2nd, HuntingtonTheater.org, and Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. I'm Josh Gondelman, filling in for Peter Sagal. Last time on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actress Rosie Perez felt the pressure of our quiz. I listen to this show every single weekend, and I'm always calling out the right answer. But now that I'm in the thick of it, I have no freaking idea. These are ridiculous. (laughs) We'll see how I do in the hot seat on this week's news quiz from NPR. Tonight at 6 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. <laughs> 